This is Naturopathic Doctors for Truth. We are gathering elders and wise NDs and other special guests to open discussion of important topics in naturopathic medicine and to address troubling trends during these times. We don't need to all agree on what the truth is, but we all agree that we need to be free to express our views, whatever those may be. All right, that was um, that was the intro, folks. Well, I'm excited like to. to uh, what was that? I like your intro. It's cool. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, I do very much appreciate that. I um, yeah, I just threw that together. That, and this is what Andy's for Truth is about. We don't all have to agree, but we have to be able to express ourselves and our views and have discussion. It, it, it just so happens that most of the people that I've, I've talked to, I agree with a, a large chunk of what we discuss. We, we have agreement, which is interesting because I think when it comes to crazy times like this, the things that really matter I mean, you're either, you either don't see it at all or you do and thus you're part of like a sort of a mindset that, that agrees. We have this sort of accord of what's going on. So I, I know that I'm very eager to hear your view on things and we can get rocking and rolling with that in a moment. Um, I could do a, a speaker view or gallery view. Yeah, let me do a gallery view, that, that'll be nice. So um, let me just do a quick intro over here on Dr. Chris Lebowski, NDDC, naturopathic doctor, chiropractor, and homeopath who practices in Ashland, Oregon. His primary clinical interest is the unraveling of chronic multi-system degenerative disease. He is currently working on his first book being published by Chelsea Green and due out this time next year where he uses the backdrop of last year, 2020, to discuss his ideas around viruses, infections, and one, why some people get sick and others don't. He sees that immunology and medicine are due for a major overhaul, and he believes that by applying naturopathic principles, he will be on the planet long enough to see that happen. Welcome, Dr. Lebowski. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's it's a pleasure. It's such a pleasure. You, um, I, I sometimes I put I put out there on Facebook, um, you know, coming up tonight on Andy's for Truth, so and so. And when I put up your name, a whole bunch of people seem very excited about it. Cool. Yeah. So tell tell us a little bit about the book that you're writing. I'm very curious about that. What's it titled? It's coming out next year. And, well, that does, yeah, and then the content would be good a little bit. Sure. Well, I've wanted to write a book for a long time. You know, you're in practice long enough and you make some discoveries, you figure some things out and they kind of just rattle around in your brain or get thrown into treatment plans over and over and over again. And, you know, I think I just talked about it for so long that my wife last year, when we're in the midst of, you know, the current situation and medicine is at the forefront of everything in the world. You know, it's always at the forefront of my mind. I imagine it's in the front of yours too, but last year it was like the global focus on it too. So it became so clear that now was the time to bring that information forth really 
to help more people. Yeah. You know, so I could write a book that lots of people could read and they could have naturopathic principles and things that they can do on their own to get and stay healthy. So like, like lay people, we're talking about lay people here. I keep saying I'm writing this book for the housewife in Ohio who okay. was terrified last year. She's in her house. She's watching the news. She's seeing CNBC. She's watching CNN and she's terrified. Yeah. And she's scared for herself and she's scared for her elderly father. She's terrified for her children and yeah. she doesn't know what to do. And so she's essentially waiting until the vaccine comes along. And yeah. you and I know that there's a lot of other options. There's a, there's a lot of other options. And for me, that would never be an option. That particular vaccine, which is, which is an experimental mRNA never before hit humanity, if we can call it a vaccine. So, so how do you help the, 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 the housewife? Did you call her a housewife? I'm, I'm not sure if that's a, if that's a politically correct term, I'm gonna get roasted for that. Um, yeah. yeah, the the person, whoever it might be, um, lay person watches the media and is not educated, doesn't doesn't think for themselves. Not a lot of critical thinking there to, uh, you know, challenge what they're hearing on the media through media. But, but even the people that do, even the people that do, that still just don't know how to take care of themselves truly. So yeah, yeah, okay. So how do you help the, how do you help assuage their fear? Well, you start the book by talking about what people have can, you know, traditionally thought that viruses are and yeah. what I think viruses are. Okay. That's where I believe that we really need to reframe our ideas around immunology and pathogens. And that's where it starts is yeah. that if you work with patients long enough and you see a patient in the throes of a chronic viral picture or chronic bacterial picture, you see that these things aren't what the average person believes they are. You know, it's not just some germ that you pick up from somewhere that then you get this thing and then you get over it with the thanks and the help of the over-the-counter remedies in the, the drugstore. Like it's a lot more complex than that. And in a lot of ways, it's a lot simpler too. And so you lay yeah. that out to help people understand that we need to think about viruses differently. And I'm not going to give away what I think it is, but there's a big shift there that I think needs to happen in people's minds. Yeah, um, I'm all ears. You know, there's been, I, I, I've, I've encountered so many different ways of looking at this from the idea that there is no such thing as a virus, sure. which I'm not sure I'm ready to accept. Neither am um, I. Okay, neither are you. I'm, I'm, I'm open to hearing the discussion though. What, that, what this year has taught me and last year is that it's so important to hear, just let people express what they think, you know? Yeah. Uh, and there's so many problems that are had through not allowing that. So if somebody does believe that there are no viruses I, I, and no such thing as viruses, then I, I'm, I'm eager to hear what they have to say, and then I can decide for myself. That's it. Certainly. So, I so you about this last year and talked to, and, and I agree with you. And it was interesting to listen to them, and it was interesting to listen to their hypotheses, and then you sort of chew on it, and you throw it against the wall, and you see if it sticks, and you go clinically. I don't think that sticks, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I don't think it sticks. And then I don't think the other extreme of the way we're taught that, you know, 
I'm going to sneeze on you. You're going to get a virus. You're going to get sick. And we've got to be fearful and decimate and destroy and bring out the arsenal to kill and des- kill every virus out there. Yeah. Well, that's not true either. You no. know, the race wouldn't be here without viruses. You're full of viruses. Yeah. So it's Absolutely. So- yeah. You know, I have, I have two little kids and we, we, my wife and I, we notice a hundred percent a big leap in their mental and emotional growth after they have a virus and it's it's very it's unmistakable they start doing absolutely new and amazing things right after they they recover from the virus um and so there's something to do there's something there dr zach bush talks all about the the beauty of virus are you familiar with uh, zach bush the md yeah sure sure i mean lots of people are talking about it that viruses actually help us evolve and they reflect, they, they are agents of, of reflection. They reflect what we need to be working on or going through. They bring us that bodily challenge or that detoxification or whatever you may have it. I hope I'm not stepping on the toes of what you don't want to talk about in your book. No, no, no. I mean, that's, that's very much in line with my thinking. Okay. What I've seen over my career, and it's very much what I'm writing about, that idea that they're pieces of information and they're important. And I think you hit on something really important with your kids, you know, like it's a download. Yeah. They get a download when they get sick with the virus. Absolutely. They get a discharge and then they are healthier after the thing is done. So no, it's right in line with my thinking and essentially, and, but the thing is like you and I get this and maybe the people that are watching get this, but most people don't get that. So I'm really writing it for the person that's never really heard that concept before and trying to frame it in a way that they can get into it and, and have it be very usable and uh, not unfairly, you know, sort of like meat in their hands where they can go, I get this. Yeah, and I can good. this to my family and I could show this to the people I know and go, look at what this doctor says. Like, this makes sense to me. And he's teaching us how to take care of ourselves. Well, that's fantastic. I think it's, I think it's a gift and a, and a, a gift. I know that's the same word twice, but it's, it's, it's literally this beautiful thing that you're offering someone to be able to make it graspable for, for the average person who's not as educated because they have the right to know as well. And some of the language is sort of like it obfuscates the simplicity of some of these, these topics that, you know, it, once you grasp them, you should be able to convey any subject in at least as, as simple terms as you possibly can. Once you I'd like to do that, yeah. That's been the fun thing about writing a book is really taking all these years of it and trying to distill it and write in a way that's fun and somewhat entertaining, a little bit of a story weaving through it. And yet at the same time, making it a manual that people can go back and go, oh yeah, what was that in chapter four about sugar? And what was that in chapter six about, you know, you know, um, SARS Asperilla, and what was that in this chapter about what's a castor oil pack, you know, like going through the things and trying to help people get it and then have something they can have on their bookshelf and pull off again and again. Yeah, sure, sure. So um, what's going on? (laughs) What is going on? What's going on in this world with, you know, with the media, with this pandemic, with the the response that we're seeing with medicine, and I mean conventional medicine and naturopathic medicine as well. 
What what is what is uh, Dr. Lebowski's take on this? Well, what I can tell you is that in December 2019, I'm the scaredest doc you know. I'm freaked out because I'm looking at John Hopkins every day and I'm seeing this little outbreak starting around Wuhan, China. Yeah. And I'm I'm deeply affected by this. I go, this is it. Here's the pandemic I've been waiting for. This is the thing I've been studying forever. You know, when I first started studying homeopathy and I'm reading Dorothy Shepard and I'm reading Elizabeth Wright Hubbard and I'm reading Burnett and Kent and all these people and they're talking about these things. And then I go on and I study with Paul Herskew and he's talking about this stuff. And I'm like shaking in my boots, you know? Yeah. In December, there's not a lot of people who know about this even. You know, the average person, the layperson doesn't know about it. And I'm not really even hearing my doctor circles talk about it. So I like to say I spent six lonely weeks thinking about this thing and thinking about what did we have in the clinic? You know, did I have every remedy I needed? Did I have all the medicines? I'm studying the herbs out of China. I'm sort of watching stuff every single day. It, it's at the foreground of my mind. And that goes on. And then, you know, we start seeing cases and I don't know, they go pretty well, you know? Like we're not having a lot of trouble using simple remedies and simple things and, and it's going really well. And then one day in April, I'm sitting in my office, this office right here, and I get a knock on the door from my office manager and she hands me a letter that she said a suspicious man just handed her at the front desk. Hmm. So I open that letter and it is uh, a letter from the Federal Trade Commission telling me that I'm under investigation for telling people to take elderberry and zinc and vitamin E and vitamin C. And so- One more time, elderberry, zinc, and vitamin C. Yeah. Very sinister prescriptions there. Uh, clearly out to make a bundle too, you know how Yeah, much yeah, that's, that's huge dollars are to be had and, and those. Okay, so it, did this suspicious person uh, just from the Federal Trade Commission you're under investigation. Okay. So, yep. So I immediately take down the stuff on our website. I immediately take down the YouTube videos that allude to that. I let them know I had no ill intentions, but the point of me telling this story doc is at that point, something shifted a little bit. I went, what's going on here? Like why can little old me doc in Southern Oregon not tell people to take things that are simple, gentle, effective, easy, researched heaps of research why can't i prescribe these things well a week later we get another letter we're in, under investigation from the department of justice and so like thousands of other clinics we were one of the ones where there was this massive censorship put in very very early on and so it changed the way i was thinking about things you know from the very beginning being very nervous and worried about this thing and then starting to see it clinically and my level of concern go down. And then to have this happen, I went, there's something political behind this too. Mm -hmm. And uh, now I can say the last year from that time, well, I think the doors have been blown wide open on the political aspect. But for me, that was the very first clue that something was rotten in Denmark. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you saw it right away. You, you, if you, If you're kind of, the critical thinking mind is still is still operating 
and you've never seen something like this before and you know you trust your medicine so why is this level of censorship this level of organized very organized censorship i mean that level of organized censorship has uh, basically gotten to the uh, governing bodies in naturopathic medicine in canada and the us so the very same thing that says you know hey vitamin c hey vitamin d this could be a really good idea here uh, i mean kono the college of naturopaths of ontario and british columbia are they forbid that kind of uh that kind of exposure of what a person could do to prevent and help themselves but you know yeah. boost their boost themselves detox get good like any any kind of thing that you say hey this could be helpful for the big c and in this case the big c is not cancer <laughs> um yeah you weren't allowed to do it that's nope. unprecedented not allowed to do it still not allowed to do it because the end game of all that was that i hired an attorney um adina matasaru whose sister is a naturopath by the way cool understood this you know implicitly she was fabulous if anybody ever needs an attorney i cannot say enough wonderful things about her she was oh. so um it, it actually chokes me up a little bit like how much she cares about our cause and how much she understands the bigger picture and she said to me you know chris they don't actually want you to show up to the hearing in portland and show them the evidence for these things because honestly it took me about 15 minutes of going on PubMed and polling research to, to substantiate this, that in any court of law, they would go, you have plenty of evidence to say that you can treat this sort of thing with the stuff that you brought up. She said, they don't want that. They want you to shut up. And so she said, this is a fight for the naturopathic profession. This is a fight for the chiropractors, for the acupuncturists, for the herbalists. This is not a fight for you because this will be hundreds of thousand dollars in court and a year of your life. She said, they want you to sign this letter that's a voluntary, a letter of voluntary compliance that you will not say that you have anything that can prevent or treat this thing. And so I signed that letter. So Did to this you? day, yes, to this day, I am still not allowed to say that I have anything that can do that. And I have it. Oh, uh, I, I see. Um, and can you repeat the name of that amazing lawyer? Adina Matasaru. I'd have to look up the spelling. I'll find it for Montessoru. you. Montessoru. Okay, I'll just... We'll just put it like that for now, and and if we could always put it in in the the, the description after in the in the video, um, okay. And so to this day, you can't advertise that you could help anybody, and they're happy with that. They're satisfied with that. They were happy with that, and you know, they you they this lawyer said that's a fight for the naturopathic doctors, but the naturopathic doctors are very much in compliance as well. That's what's been really disappointing to me that when I spoke to the professional organizations, you know, and they said they were going to pick up the fight. And then I just watched over the last three to six months after that, that nobody was picking up the fight and that everybody just stepped in line. And so, yeah, that's been really disappointing. Um, there, there is a huge amount of money that is, that is empowering this censorship media, you know, misinformation uh, fear mongering at campaign, a huge amount of money. If you, you know, I, I've, I've watched quite a bit myself. I've watched quite a few, few videos and documentaries and 
one of the ones that I found quite impactful was Plandemic Part Two. I liked Part One a lot, but Part Two it showed me something about the media and how the media is controlled and how much money. Another one was another one that really influenced me in seeing the power of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which I realize is not the top level of power in this game, but certainly a very strong call it general or field marshal or something is Bill and Get Melinda Gates' huge network and their huge influence of both Plandemic and, and the movie Who uh, is Bill Gates by the Corbett Report. Oh, that was excellent. It was like a three or four part series. Yeah, that's right. That was great. That excellent was great. journalism, excellent yeah. journalism. And you see how much money has been thrown around. So when CCNM, my alma mater in, in, in Toronto, starts using the language of Bill Gates to reduce vaccine hesitancy, to train our people so that we can reduce vaccine hesitancy and a few other terms that I, I don't recall right now, but you can see the stamp of, of language that is a signature. It's like, you know, when you study homeopathy, there's certain language that will tip you off to a remedy. Well, this is the language of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or the elite globalists or whoever's behind this this pandemic um, that wants to control the narrative so that there's only one possible viable option, which is which is the experimental mRNA vaccine, right? I agree. I agree. So it's pretty it really interesting. Looks, Go ahead. It really looks that way, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Because there's even medical doctors, you know, if it was just naturopaths getting censors, like, oh, okay, well, you know. We've always, always been maligned. So yes, I agree. If it was just us, you'd go, okay, well, that's par for the course, you know, like, yeah, exactly. It's par for the course. You, you, witch doctor, hokey, hokey, naturopathic doctors. Um, but, you know, conventional medical doctors have been equally censored for having any kind of say in, you know, effective and non-harmful um, solutions like, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, which I would recommend a million times over, you know, getting, getting the V. Very safe drugs. Very, very safe. safe. Very yeah, safe. Ivermectin, like really safe drug. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So that's cool. So that's your book. And then you, you're telling people what's really going on and how to protect themselves and anything else, any other elements in your book that you're kind of excited about? Yeah, well, I mean, I think in the big picture too, the, the concept is that this isn't the last one. You know, this is virus 1.0. Yeah. So this is coming again. And that, that's really where I want people to be empowered is that they go, okay, we got through that. You know, everybody just wants to get back to normal. And there's a lot of people that just think this thing is going to go away, but it's it's really my deep belief that we just started the great awakening. Like this is just the first step of the next 50 years of changes that are coming and people need to be prepared. I mean, that's, you, you sort of talked about like the beauty of a virus. I agree with that. And I believe the beauty of this whole situation in this last year is that it's the great uncovering. It's making us all look at the things we never wanted to look at. Like, the Band-Aid came off, there's the wound, it's got pus in it, there's gravel in it, it's not doing well. You're gonna slap the Band-Aid back on or you're gonna take it off, you're gonna debride it, you're gonna wash it, you're gonna get in there and do what you need to do. And 
those of us that are willing to look at the wound and clean it out, I think we're going to be fine. And those are the people that I want to have this book. So they have tools and they yeah. go, man, I was scared that first time. I'm not scared anymore. Yeah. I'm not scared. That's so, good. Yeah. I mean, that's and, a big. I mean, are you still working with people with, with the, the virus mm-hmm. and how yeah. are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. What I'm like saying these days is we're working with four syndromes, you know, we're working with the, the original virus we're working with people that have been um, vaccinated. Uh-huh. What's going on with that? Um, we're working on long, long haul. You know, there's a few of those. Yeah, and the chronic effects of the V or the virus. The C, yeah. Yeah. So in order, you know, the C itself, the long haul C, the effects of the vaccine, and yeah. then uh, then what I'm terming the vaccine bystander syndrome which we are also seeing. You know, That's right, like the, the leakage of the spike protein, which in Pfizer's own document. Page 84 or something, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think it's page 67 of their very own document. I could put up a link to that as well. Um, they describe these phenomena, like if a, what, if a, a woman who has a, a partner gets the vaccine, well, he might exhibit these symptoms because of the transmission of, of a vaccine vector, like what, we've never seen that before, uh, talking about a vaccine vector, which is transmittable from a vaccinated person to a non-vaccinated person. And I, I say, I read that verbiage like four times and I can't say that I still actually get what they're implying there, but <laughs> I tell you, I, I don't, but clinically we started seeing it and it's a thing. And you know, when you see something sitting in front of you and you hear the story, it's a thing that's happening. Um, it's not happening to everybody. I have a theory about it, but like it's, it's happening and people are absolutely, I I actually started to get, uh, some pain in my, in my genitals, which is, I never had that pain before and it comes and goes like it lasted for several days and then it's gone. And then I might be exposed to another person who recently had a V. I don't know what it is. If it's someone who had it a month ago or, or just yesterday, like how long that infectiousness is from the vaccine itself, you know? Yeah. What are you seeing in terms of symptoms from, from people that are getting this uh, spike protein mi- migration? Yeah, or whatever it is, you know, um, whatever it's happening to that person who's now a factory for that. And I don't, I think we'll figure that out at some point. I don't know if it's actually that protein, if it's pheromones, if it's something energetic, who knows? But right. what I'm seeing with it is, you know, a bunch of different syndromes, uh, definitely dysregulation of menstrual cycle in women. Very yes. strange, very uncharacteristic, very abnormal. And it's one thing if you see it one time, but then when you see it 10 times, 20 times, 30 times, you go, there's something going on here. Uncharacteristic bleeding, painful bruises, that spontaneous bruising, odd, large ones, no recollection of having any injury and yeah. then receding and then coming back in other locations. That's been a big one. Um, and gas- when you say bleeding, is that by any orifice or is it like uh, menstrual bleeding or dysmenorrhea? Like, uh, sorry. Yeah, so in that first class, a lot of dysmenorrhea, like uncharacteristic dysmenorrhea. Yeah. Uh, the worst period I've ever had or the worst mm. period I've had in 20 years. Um, 
those sorts of things or like one where I had symptoms that are not like anything I normally have. And yeah. so those, those as a doc, right. They kind of make the bells go off. You go, what's going on here. But then there's the bleeding thing too, where there's something in the vasculature where there's the spontaneous bruising, painful bruising. Yeah. Uh, right. Right. A bunch of times. Definitely. Yeah. It's, you know, you've got ACE2 receptors on the inside of the endothelium of the vasculature. They're predominant there. Um, and then also a lot of abdominal symptoms in people too. Strange, you know, like in the absence of a diarrhea, very painful abdominal pain that lasts for a day or two and then goes away and then comes back. Seen that a bunch of times too. Mm. And have you found any, like uh, any, I don't know if we can even call it, but genus epidemicus for, for the vaccines, like, like that 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 term refers to for the listeners that don't know what that is in in certain um you know epidemics or or pandemics you might find a remedy or remedies that correspond to a large number of cases that can resolve certain cases so have you seen that for this this odd presentation of dysmenorrhea and, and menstrual issues any any remedies well, no, and I think it's fascinating you brought up the genus epidemicus because this is something you and I should talk about because yeah, I think it's fascinating. First, I'll answer that question in a second, but I think it's fascinating that we had a pandemic around the world where there wasn't really a genus epidemicus either. Right. That's interesting to me. That's right. been stuck in my head. You know, there was, you know, like people put out stuff early on and I didn't see it play out, to be honest. I didn't see these remedies that people were claiming fix things to really fix stuff. I found, honestly, through the whole thing, I'm using pulsatilla, I'm using sulfur, I'm using phosphorus, I'm using calcarea carbonica and belladonna. You know, I'm just like using anything that comes up. And <laughs> yeah, was there a fair amount of sulfur? Sure, maybe I used more sulfur. Maybe I used a little more arsenicum than I would have normally used. But it wasn't like, this is all about this thing. So I found that fascinating. And I'm, I'm really excited when this whole, when the dust settles on it, to really hear the thought leaders in homeopathy and their discussion around that. And I got some people I want to talk to about that, but you and I should, I'd be curious to see what you think. But then too, no, I haven't found one either for this syndrome. Once again, it's been whatever seems to be in front of me. So well, yeah, I mean, there, this doesn't behave like a virus. Like it's not, it's not a, it's not a typical virus. And what's also interesting is that, so um, you know, Judy Mikovits from the Pandemic Part One and Two. So yes. she she says that for the the effects of of the vaccine, one of the cures could be cerumen. Cerumen is an antiparasitic for uh, African sleeping sickness, antiparasitic. What is ivermectin? Antiparasitic. What is hydroxychloroquine? Well, okay, they also have antiviral and anti-inflammatory aspects, but primarily uh, it's for the treatment of malaria, which is caused by uh, a fungus, sorry, a parasite, plasmodium. So we have all across the board these Parasit, anti-parasitics that are being shown to be effective for a virus, which doesn't look like a virus. And it's kind of strange. I'd say that, you know, that made me real suspicious early on too. 
It doesn't act like any of the other ones I've seen. And you hear reports from people who get, you know, who just pick it up spontaneously and you hear some strange things. I've heard a lot of weird reports from patients of mine who said, you know, like I felt it when it got into my central nervous system. I felt, I felt a pop. I heard a pop. I had this strange sensation people that are sort of like many weeks out from it, it's still in my nervous system. I can still feel it. And now that's not to say you couldn't see that with things like Epstein-Barr or cytomegalovirus, but it's a- Or it's herpes a, even, even herpes. herpes. But it's weird verbiage to hear from people. It's yeah. strange. Especially respiratory illness. Like Which, it, it, it is, in some cases it isn't even uh, respiratory. Um, George Wiseman, who's not himself a doctor, but he's, He's a pretty wise man. Uh, he's he's a, he's big in Brown's gas. I don't know if you're familiar with Brown's gas at all. Okay. Was I did talk with him last week. I peeked in on your talk last. It was fascinating. I caught like 45 minutes of it. Super oh, smart. Oh, awesome. I'm glad you saw. I, I love George. I think he's, a, he's an awesome guy. He's really cool helping talk. a lot of people. And he expressed that China, the Chinese are the number one way that they're dealing with, with the epidemic is with uh, Brown's gas, actually. In any case, uh, George seems to think, based on his research, that it's it's not a respiratory illness, it's blood. It, it affects the blood. And it affects oxygenation of the blood. That's why people are dying of asphyxia and they don't even have a fever. They don't have they don't show any other signs except this strange asphyxia. Yeah, I, I said all along it's wrong treatment. We, we were doing wrong treatment from the beginning. And I think we saw that pretty quickly and they're throwing people on respirators and they're doing all this stuff that just, it was wrong treatment. And I, I don't know, I said from the beginning too, this is a naturopathic disease. We should be handling this, you oh, know, yeah, like for sure. I had these fantasies. I would lay there and say, you know, like if Trump would just give me a call and have me put together a team, you know, I'd get yeah. that mass. And I'd get the ozone therapy and I'd get the hyperbaric and we'd be doing high dose vitamin C and I'd lay it all out and I'd get, you know, the whole team going and we design this whole thing. And like, but oh, the number of deaths would have greatly plummeted. Like basically one of the worst things that could be done was done in a lot of those hospitals, especially I'm thinking in New York where they had all the patients on, re on respirators, high pressure respirators that was basically killing nine out of 10 people. And then they're not, stopping to say hey what's maybe we should look at something else here this is not a very good percentage you know yeah um so yeah so it's i think that's a i, I never thought about that but i saw i heard so many different remedies in different homeopathic meetings and you know zoom calls about what the genus epidemicus is and yeah there is no genus epidemicus as far as I know, I think some people have proposed interesting ideas that could be really helpful, um, but it's, pro it's, it's not your typical thing. There was um, a, a, a whistleblower in China who said that, a, a virologist who said that it's actually, uh, you know, made in a lab and it's, there's splicings in there of malaria, which is what makes sense why hydroxychloroquine might be effective for it, and AIDS. Have you heard of that? I've heard this theory also, and I've heard that. And I, I think if you're a reasonable person and you use logic, that it is 
as likely, if not more likely, this thing was made in a lab. You know, there's a lot of evidence to point towards that. Yes. It's actually, if you lay it out and you took the media out of the equation and you put these on the table, you looked at the preponderance of evidence, you would go, you're kind of an idiot for thinking it's not made in a lab. You know, those people would be, would be called the idiots. I don't know. I don't understand the genetics of it. I don't know what was done to it, but I have heard those theories and I can say it acts unusual. For it life. does. It does. I think, you know, the whole Fauci email leakage, which is, I find really interesting that the mainstream media is covering that. Yeah. Uh, at least the conservative like Fox news and stuff like that. I, I, I'm really wary. This is a kind of a bit of a parenthesis in our discussion, but I'm really wary about the manipulation of the media, you know, playing the two sides and like creating, spinning something and, oh, now Fauci, they're going to throw Fauci under the bus, you know, to maybe let a little steam off of the people that are catching on. He's the bad guy. And then let's keep going on with the agenda, stuff like that, whatever, right? But uh, Fauci's emails all point really clearly to Chinese and, and particular Wuhan involvement in, in their labs over there, um, which everybody, like all the conspiracy theorists, which I think they're just people doing good journalism today. And they're just easily you know, dismissed as conspiracy theorists. Well, all, all the people, even, even over a year ago, were, were already saying, already establishing these connections between the NIH and, and, and the World Health Organization, Wuhan and China, all this stuff. It's, it's a pretty obvious line of breadcrumbs. I think it is. I think it is. But yet, yeah, you know, the media, yeah. Uh, yeah, the media's job is to make that obtuse or unclear or something. Yeah. So, um, yeah, let me see what else, what, what else uh, we either. So there's this huge censorship. It's unprecedented. There's, um, what, what would you like to see naturopaths doing? So you, you kind of mentioned just now that if you were assigned to a, a, a task force, you would, you, would get, you would get going and get crazy. Are you, are you allowed to, to, to give us some ideas? You mentioned a few. Did you mention all your, your big ideas or how you would see being able to help people the most? Well, I, yeah, I mean, let's suppose we could turn the clock back and let's suppose we can go back to the beginning of this thing. Yeah. Um, and I won't give any specifics because I can't give specifics, you know, but you can, I can't. Uh, I just think that it, it was a very, it, it was a very manageable thing to take it in steps, you know, to, there, there were people that came in that they just needed some really basic care and it would have kept them out of the hospital and it would have lowered the total case count, you know? And then there's this next tier of people that are, they're sicker, but we have plenty of tools in our armamentarium that could have handled that quite well. And it's, this isn't hindsight, you know? This isn't looking back and going, oh, this would have worked really well. That was standing there right then and seeing these tools that we have, basic naturopathic tools or maybe functional medicine tools that worked and that we're seeing play out now when people still come in and you can use these things and they do work. Yeah. You know, and then the critical care people too, where we've already alluded to that, where they were just doing things incorrectly. It just didn't, it wasn't being managed appropriately in the right way. And I think we, we had plenty of things that could have helped in that realm also, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, the lockdowns are, are unreal too. Like, um, you know, I can just say it because I've said it before. And I, I really think they're, they're basically shepherding us. That's, that's a, a nice word for it into the corral of their making, of their choosing these technocratic, um, globalist, um, basically psychopaths who think they are the divine ones to rule the world. And we're just, you know, the peasantry that they can, they can basically orchestrate and control. And it's for our good, you know, it's for the, it's for the good of humanity. That's, that's the whole idea. So, so I see like these, the media and the medicine and all the censorship, it's all been working together in, in one concerted effort to basically um, apply their agenda, to bring their agenda. There's certainly been a historical record of that happening in the past. Yes. And I think the interesting thing is that idea, like you go back to Fauci and sort of throwing him under the bus. Well it's been a theory of mine for a long time that essentially that's what royalty is. You know, there's sort of like when, when the technocrats and the people of power figured out like, Hey, the peasants are going to come for us. Let's put these people up and tell them they're the boss, you know? And yeah. then if they storm the castle with their pitchforks, well, they'll kill them, but they won't kill us and we'll still control the strings behind it. And so I very much am in agreement with you there that, there are, there are unseen forces and people in the background who are pulling strings and they don't, they don't really care about human life. They no, really in fact, they would like to reduce the population considerably. So yeah, I mean, it's, that's possible. I, I certainly have, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't trust them as far as I could throw them if we knew who they were. Right, if we knew who we were, there's some theories about it. I don't, I don't think we have to get into it, but you know, it's the the Wizard of Oz or something. Um, and yeah, that's I really like the the picture you just painted. That they figured out, hey, we're we're less than one percent, and you know, if the masses actually recognize who they really are, and they get upset with us, they could come for us. And so let's, you know orchestrate this through straw the straw men of of our times and times past sure yeah absolutely that's true they don't you know the ego comes out enough that the notoriety is not what's important but the power is important you know yeah. so Fauci's one of those figureheads and perhaps the gates and the clintons and the bezos and everybody else perhaps they're all just that you know second tier and and um, klaus schwab yeah the 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 guy who says you're, you know, you're not going to own anything in the Great Reset, and you will be happy. And he also says, you know, there are four billion useless feeders on the planet. In his book, COVID nineteen: The Great Reset, and these will be culled by um, starvation. And um, you know, I don't, I don't mean to, I don't want to dwell in fear, like. I don't feel afraid. I never felt afraid. I always felt a sense of almost like, kind of like what you did, but it's sort of excitement. Like we've been waiting for this time for a long time. The, the players are revealing themselves. Whereas before, you know, if you did ever mention anything like this, you were a conspiracy theorist and there was nothing to back you up except you had done piles and piles of research but you couldn't really point to too much happening on the surface, but they have revealed themselves time and time again. 
you know, it's, it's become quite obvious the, the control. They've revealed their hands. And that's a good thing because like fungus, like the dark forces, they can't thrive in the light. They, when, when they reveal themselves and people see them and then they, they act, they can do something about it. They can stand together and say no, which is what this all boils down to. But if they thrive in, in darkness and they, they, they control through others and those others are, you know, coming and going every couple of years, then that we, there's not much we could do. So this is actually a really amazing, unprecedented time. And I don't want to paint fear, but I would like people to be aware of what's possible. Yeah, I'm in agreement. I mean, I think I, I always try and look at things from a microscopic view and a macroscopic view. And in my, in the macroscopic perspective, you're frozen there. Can you still hear me? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm right with you, absolutely. Let's see, you just froze. Okay. I'll just wait. Okay, you're unfrozen now. Okay, good. Yeah, so what I was saying is, you know, the microscopic and the macroscopic view from my perspective is that, you know, we've um, essentially, you're familiar with the great Kali Yuga? Yes, I am. Mm -hmm. the, great year, the great cycle, you know, this transition that we apparently go through in this planet where we go through periods of density and periods of darkness and periods of patriarchy and periods of technology and periods of, you know, reductionistic thinking and then yeah. over time we move towards periods of lightness and periods of less density and periods of matriarchy and periods of creativity and yes. then you know, what was 2012 the end of the mayan calendar that was the end of a great cycle and so we're at the bottom of that cycle though you know and like yeah, yeah we're going up but we're still at the pit 2012 is the pit if you take 13,000 years and you spread that out, like this is like a long time to climb back towards the light. But yeah. the beauty of that is there is only one direction we can go right now. And we are heading towards the light as a planet. We are heading towards the light as a species. But the next bit, it's going to be rocky. Yeah, I think we're, I think we're in, the, in the way of, there's, there's some rocky potential ahead. I, I do I do differ a little bit in the way I perceive the yugas. I, I'm I'm of the mind of uh, this this gentleman right here. You see Sri Uteswar? Yep. So I read his book, The Holy Science, and I can't say that this is the ultimate truth, but I could just say that I resonated with it and I really liked his idea that we actually have moved out of the Kali Yuga and we're a few hundred years into Dwapara Yuga, sure. which is which is the um, you know. The, the Kali Yuga is like the dark ages. There's, there's no technology. And, and when you move into Dwapara, you start to understand the principles of electricity and polarity, yin and yang, and definitely electricity. So, I mean, if you look at our world, That's what's um, a couple, yeah. yeah, a couple of hundred years ago, when we started to develop a, a, a knowledge of electricity was right when we moved out of the Kali Yuga into Dwapara Yuga and um, I think what, what we're seeing today is, is like the darkness is trying to hold on for dear life to, to maintain, maintain its power. And it's like, we're kind of, humanity is kind of shaking its leg to get this, like this dirty beast uh, from the mire off of its leg. 
And that's what the struggle is now. I still think there are some years of struggle, but I don't think that, I think we're on the up and up. That's what it feels like to me. I agree. I agree. I just don't think we're done with it yet, but I like your perspective better. I prefer that one. Um, yeah. I just think, you know, like you can't, once you take that bandaid off and there's pus and there's gravel and all that, it takes time for that wound to heal. And so to think that, oh, by 2022, everything's going to be hunky dory. No, we have to fix the planet. You know, yeah. we've been destroying our planet for hundreds of years. We need to fix that. We need to fix our healthcare system. It's in shambles and it doesn't work. And it's never been so evident as now. Everything. We need, we need Everything. To fix our system. You know, the monetary system, the systems of control and domination, the system yeah. of government, those all have to be fixed. And that's going to take some time. So I perceive that as this rockiness of the next 50 years or so. Oh, and sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I get it. I, I'm not I'm not sure that all the systems need to be changed, that systems itself are okay, but how the greedy column 1% or something have orchestrated the symptoms to work and to serve their monopoly of the system, that has to change. Because democracy is is well, first of all, democracy and capitalism, it's not the worst system. The, if, if you want to compare it to some of the more Marxist communistic options that seem to be offered alongside with some of the other uh, uprising of, of, of anger and change that are coming forward. I mean, if we look at the precedent of, of Maoist China and Stalinist Russia, I mean, these were not very happy places to be. And if you said anything, you were first censored and then you were killed or you were just killed. Well, we have to recognize too, right? That we're, I'm not just talking about the US. You're not just talking about the US. We're talking about the world, right? Yes. Still very real places like that in the world. That's true. There are definitely. Does that mean democracy for the whole planet? I don't know. Maybe. Does it mean some kind of form of unity for the whole planet? That's my dream is that we, you know, evolve to this place where we realize we are all one yeah. and we need to all work together for the betterment of mankind. And yeah, that I agree. It's service to the consciousness not service to self so absolutely what happens absolutely I, I love that i'm with you 100 percent. i have even made efforts to try to you know bring some ideas of unification that's a, that's right up my alley as well one thing i do differ with you is also like you described it as this darkness and density and then patriarchy and then moving into lightness and then matriarchy so I think that I would rather live in a matriarchal society than in a patriarchal society, but I would rather live in a matri-patriarchal society, a, a, a one where men and women are just in harmony with each other, um, than live in a matriarchal society. And the idea, what, what we're seeing right now, or like the idea perhaps of let's say Hillary Clinton had become president of the United States, the fact that she's a woman has so very little to do with how good a president that she could be. Because if she is being played or has her heart in, in a bucket of darkness that is governing a lot of the other rulers of the planet today, the other you know, people that are governing, then it doesn't matter what skin color or, or, or race or gender she is, it matters 
what quality of person she is. And I do not think that Hillary Clinton would have made a very good president. She would have, she would have bolstered the confidence of women like Barack Obama did for, for black people. And I think that's a pop, that's a plus, you know, uh, we, we have one, we have one in the white house. That's a, that's a plus on our side, but it's the quality of character, not necessarily the gender that matters. And maybe that's it too, that the place between the darkness and the light is where, you know, we have that balance because I'm a firm believer too, that our universe, you know, oscillates between these things. It's, it's appears to have this duality, right? Yes. We, we see it every day and we see it in medicine. You see it in Chinese medicine theory. You see it, it shows up everywhere. Yes. There's the dark and light. And so the likelihood that we ever just end up in the light is probably not going to happen. You're going to, you're going to always feed back and forth. And that's that beautiful dance of the universe, you know, where maybe there was unity and then it became duality and then it became all these other things. And at some point it goes, God, was it better to be just unified again in this constant expansion and contraction? So right. maybe it's a place in between patriarchy and matriarchy where we can walk together unified. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. I, I, I love that. And you know what? I, I struggle a little bit with that idea that here we are, we become, we move from Dwapara into Trecha Yuga and finally into Satya Yuga, which is, I mean, total unif unifying, no disease, longevity, bliss being in, in the body, and maybe even only you don't even perceive the body as a body. Who knows how, the, the vastness of that, that state? And, and here we are, we're an enlightened society living in harmony with nature and with the divine. And then we evolve back down to the Kali Yuga. Like, I, I don't like that idea at all. <laughs> it's a tough one to wrestle with. It's like, it's like health and disease, right? You know, they mirror yeah. one to have the other. So I get you. I hear that too. And then I think, well, I'm just a simple human being. And who am I to prefer one thing or another in the universe, you know? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't downplay what the the potential of the human being is because ultimately the the wisdom that you've spoken, I mean, I agree with uh, just about everything that you're saying, and I I think that that wisdom is coming from a place which is beyond what we consider ourselves as humans to be. Certainly, like consciousness. You mentioned consciousness before, right? Yeah. And I, I kind of look at it this way. I, I'll just, let me throw this out. It's, it's, a, it's a, I have all these working theories, you know, <laughs> I, I should say theories in, in evolution, theories in progress. Um, I would, I'd like, hope all doctors have theories. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I come up with them all the time. I came up with one about this time last night that I think is really interesting. And I, I'm tying it back because I think that's one of the biggest problems with this pandemic is that you've seen people stop thinking. So I want to applaud you for continuing to have theories because I think it's fundamental for us to change our paradigm and get people well. And you have to constantly be thinking and coming up with things. So well, please. thank you. Thank you. So here's my theory on, on the yugas and humanity. So if you take a human being this is how I understand things. A person lives in this physical world and dies. And then they go to what we call heaven, which is the astral plane. And they, 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 they have a resting period there or whatever, they review their life and then they get ready for another reincarnation into the physical. That, that cycle is, is spoken of in, in 
in, in Hinduism and Buddhism, it's a, it's a kind of a universal, you know. It was in Christianity until they took it out of the Bible, yes. Yeah, right. And in Judaism as well, mystical Judaism is Gilgul, like it's a, it's a, it's a cycle of life. Now, <clears throat> that's, that seems forever, but a person does actually at some point transcend that painful cycle of going back up into a less dense, less suffering realm to then have to kind of squeeze through the the vaginal canal again and to get smacked by the doctors back into this harsh world and then back again after death, blah, blah, blah. So my, my theory is when a person transcends that reality, then they stop that cycle. There's a cycle that humanity is gonna keep going through until we transcend that cycle. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. And I think there are the, the preponderance of evidence is that there are probably millions of other species and races from other places in the universe that have done that thing over time. And perhaps they're helping us or want to help us, or some of them do. Just once again, like if you laid it out on the table, you go, is it more likely that the universe is empty or is it more likely that it's teeming with life of highly evolved species that have transcended some of those things? And I put my money over here. Yes. You know? Yeah, I agree. And I think humanity is a relatively young civilization. I mean, if you look at where we are in our consciousness, like it's, I think it's a very basic and important first principle to think for yourself. And that's, if we all thought for ourselves, um, we, we wouldn't be in this trouble. If you just turn off the television, you know? Yeah, that's it. And the me turn off the media, you know, maybe watch something enriching and, and, and rich, like with um, learning and good principles. But uh, I think that we, as humanity, like, it's so, it, the idea that we are all one is, is absolutely true. I think that's the ultimate reality. But this is what, what I like to refer to as you have to walk before you run. So before you can launch into the unity and, and merge with the oneness and see yourself as, part, as one with the whole, you have to first incarnate properly into your own very self, like your individual self, and, and, you know, and deal with your personal issues where, wherein you have abandoned your individual self. So first you have to reclaim, we have to reclaim ourselves in the ways that we've abandoned ourselves before we can, you know, jump off the, the, the diving board into the great sea of oneness. Yeah. I, I appreciate that perspective. I like that. No, thank you. Thank you very much. So, so this is, this is really cool. Now I, I, I'm so excited by the fact that you are a naturopathic doctor who loves and practices homeopathy. And that, that is as from where I come from, I, I graduated like 21 years ago. <clears throat> which where during which time it wasn't that big a deal that naturopaths studied and liked homeopathy. But that's changing a little bit. The landscape for homeopathy is changing at the college level and at the media level. What, what is your experience around that? Yeah, I think uh, from the college level, it's all but been abandoned. It's really become this sort of sideline therapy that's taught inside of other coursework it's uh very sort of rote you know like appendicitis if they would even in the colleges anymore let you treat appendicitis with a remedy 
you would give these ones, you know? Yeah, that's or, right. Like cookie cutter yeah. stuff. Cookie cutter stuff, which is not, you and I know the way you practice homeopathy. It's in fact the antithesis of homeopathy. Um, so I think on the college level, it's really unfortunate because every student that I have come sit in my office, you know, when they come observe with me, they, they bemoan that. I mean, they show up here because they see, they know who I am and what sort of stuff I do. And they come here because they want some exposure to homeopathy and some of the old naturopathic principles. And they, they say it's, it's no longer really being taught there. Yes. Yeah. It's a shame. Um, yeah. Well, the homie, like um, CCNM always had a decent program. I, I, I think that the naturopathic colleges have never really had a strong homeopathic program. Um, some, some teachers are, are better than others. Like there's some, there's some pockets of schools that have better classical teaching. CCNM was pretty good. I want to, I want to give it props because I, when I got into practice, I wasn't quite ready from what I learned because you're learning 85,000 different modalities and subject matters. It's hard to really get good at, at any one, but I continued my studies and I got more efficient um, one of one of my teachers that I really appreciate very much is Lou Klein. Like he, he really helped me a lot. Uh, brilliant, brilliant man, brilliant homeopath. So, um, so what was I saying? Yeah. So the the homeopathy has just been shouldered out as an elective, and and that's the first step. Now I spoke with Bob Bernhardt. He's the infamous guy who is saying that he he's the president of CCNM who wants to you know, get all naturopaths and students vaccinated with the experimental mRNA gene therapy. And he is mandating vaccines now for uh, college residents that are coming in first year. They're mandated now. So this is a big deal. Now he said to me, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Block, I, I don't think that uh, this doesn't, it's not what he sounds like, but I'm, I'm just going to put on a voice so you know it's him talking. You know, I don't think in uh, 20 years that uh, homeopathy will even be a part of the program. He said that to me. And then I, I, I published an article in NDNR and then it was fact checked and he denied having said that. So I had to retract that statement. But I remember him saying that. And I'm, I'm not surprised because that whatever it has taken over naturopathic colleges, it doesn't like vitalistic, homeopathic, um, real healing things that don't cost a great deal, like hydrotherapy. Um, you know, these things are going to kind of get shouldered out for the more um, conventional, evidence based type things that are easier to inject with money and see products and. You know, I think it's just the, the part of the war for the soul of naturopathy is going on at the college level. And I think I agree with you completely. And I think it's disheartening and sad. And, and I think it's also a it's an inferiority complex on the part of the profession. And it's yeah. a desire to fit in. It's a desire to be part of all that. And honestly, I think the best thing the naturopathic profession could do would go, we don't want anything to do with you. We want to walk away, kind of like the chiropractors did to the osteopaths in the 1970s, where they said, shove it up here. We don't want it. We're going to stay chiropractors. And I really think, well, what I think is going to happen is I think we're going to have a great naturopathic college that emerges in the next decade, you know, one that is truly vitalistic and one that goes back to principles because people are craving it and people need it. And they're going to teach botanical medicine there the way it should be taught and homeopathy. And we're going to, 
you know, do manipulation and hydrotherapy and all these great things. And all that other stuff is just going to sort of be a sideline and it's going to be an elective, you know, like if you want to know about all this other stuff, you can take an elective in this, but it's going to be core vitalism because we need it. We need it. The, the people coming out are distressed by it if they even know it's happening. And I think a lot of folks don't even know it's happening. They're going to these schools and they just don't even see that what they're learning really is that term green allopathy. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Dr. Christy Fleetwood, I don't know if you're familiar with her. Yeah, you know the name. So she was on here, Endies for Truth, uh, last month or so. And uh, she proposed a new college. I'm like, I've been thinking about that for a long time. So let's get together. Yeah, let's get together. Well, definitely, I will. We'll, we'll definitely. I'll. Uh, I'll think of you 100. percent You're welcome. Totally welcome. And she she sends me like these listings of like uh, real estate, like for a million bucks. There's this there's this ranch with 10 acres, and I'm like, that's gorgeous. Okay, let's maybe we'll start with the. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Get a bunch of students, and we'll have them building buildings for a couple of years. You know, a million bucks for a college is nothing. You know. Shoot oh yeah screen. well i i uh, sure sure thank you that's good is this up there is this around you guys is she a local to you or she's, you guys like she's in virginia she's around virginia right now but she she was on she was in oregon for quite some time uh yeah. sec. is that true yes uh n-u-n-m yes 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 um Keep me in the loop because I want to be part of that. I know it's going to happen and, and I know I'm going to be part of it. All right, you bet. I love, I love, I love your energy. I love the way you think. I, it's fantastic. I love that you're, you know, you practice homeopathy and um, so uh, yeah. Yep. This, this, this is. Uh, well, and why do we practice homeopathy? I mean, why do we use homeopathy? Why did I get interested in it? Why did you get interested in it? And, and why does it still, as you said, you know, when we started talking today before we turned the cameras on, I use it in every single case and I use it in every single case too. It's not the only thing that I do. Are there times I don't prescribe a remedy? Sure, but we use it because it's safe, gentle, effective, powerful medicine, powerful medicine. Powerful. I mean, we don't use it because it's, you know, we think it's sexy or it's, you know, there's, there's nothing sexy about it. Like people don't even get it. People don't even remember that you tap the pellets into their mouth and they come that's back. Right, that's right. They go, Did you give me something, you know, and you're never going to be like a big famous doctor prescribing homeopathic remedies, but we do it because it's so incredibly powerful and there's nothing quite like it. I, I had a case this afternoon of a patient and I look under the microscope too. You know, I look at people's blood under the microscope and yeah, that's cool. I saw this like this disorganization, this systemic disorganization in her being. And she's got stomach cancer and like, that's getting better. Like, you know, we're fixing that thing. And like, she's been sick with viruses for years and she has so much more vitality and she could do all these things. But there was like, she actually started um, immunotherapy for her cancer. Like things were getting better and better and better. And her family convinced her that she needed to do more. You know, even though we're watching it, you know, shrink. We just looked at an ultrasound today and the tissue is yeah. beautiful and pink and it looks like healthy tissue. We had one from six months ago and it was bloody and variegated. It just looked nasty. But there's this, she started Keytruda and there's this disorganization in her blood. And I'm sitting there going, okay, how do you fix disorganization? How do you fix disorganization? We give a remedy. 
You know, like yeah. what else? What else do we have besides something like that that can help reorganize a being? Yeah, right. I, exactly. I used to, you know, I had a tough childhood in the sense that I was sick a lot and a lot of symptoms that no medicine that I knew at the time could address. I had all kinds of weird sensations. Well, all those sensations are the sensations as if in, in our Materia Medica. I found a medicine. I fell in love with homeopathy after about 30 seconds of my professor, Dr. Chris Souten at CCNM in 1996, started talking about it. My jaw hit the floor. I had no idea anything like that existed. And I was, I've, been, I've been in love with the medicine ever since. And there's so often I just give praise to, to the creator for this incredible medicine. It, it just, it just it, you know, it works on principles that don't the principles don't change that's the beauty of it they don't change they don't change yeah the trick is you know how do you make it accessible how do you make it teachable how do you make it so it doesn't take you know as the tolka says 10 years of being a beginner and so i think that's the interesting thing if we're talking about colleges and we're talking about the naturopathic profession like because even in that, even with the good teachers, like I had some good teachers at NCNM, back it was NCNM, Dur Elmore, brilliant homeopath, really great guy. Like, um, but how do you how do you condense it so people can understand it and get it? And I don't know that I know the answer to that. Question. I don't think you can. I don't. I think it's it it falls into the category of great medicine that has a big learning curve, and the devotion to it is worth every effort every blood sweat and tear um, because in when you get past I'm not even sure if it's a 10 year beginner period or maybe a 15 or 20 year beginner I mean I still sometimes feel like overwhelmed in in my in a case you know I don't know which way to go um, but that's the beauty and that that puts the value in somebody who is an elder who has been practicing the medicine for 25, 30, 35, 40 years, who is um, still has all their marbles and can practice. They, they have a tremendous amount of wisdom. It is, it is a medicine which is tapped directly into the, the nature of reality itself. So there's no, there's no point where you, you, you actually could say, Oh yeah, I, I know that I get, I get homeopathy. Sure. <laughs> sure. You, you get it, but you're constantly learning more and more. And there's not too many, um, I want to say modalities that are like that. Not too many. There are some. No, I mean, I think that's the beauty of naturopathic medicine, right? Is that we have some of those. And for a mind like yours and mine, who are constantly craving information, it's a wonderful way to practice medicine because you will never get tired. You will never get bored. Yeah. It's possible. There's always something else to learn. There's yeah. always a way to see a remedy you've never seen it before. It's sitting in front of you go, oh my God, that's Bryonia. I just didn't even like, wow, I didn't even get it, you know? Yeah, that's right. I, I, I totally hear you. Absolutely. That, that's, that's discovery. Or, or, or you, 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 give a re you see a remedy that you've given multiple times, but in a case, and it's presenting such a weird, strange, covert way, and you go, holy smokes, that's, you know, a, a remedy I've given multiple times already. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I love about it. When you can, I always sort of picture when you, 
sort of step to the side and see something from a different angle. That's yeah. the visual I always get when I have that thing with a remedy where I go, I was just thinking this person needed phosphorus and they needed phosphorus and they had phosphorus all day long. And then I looked over here and was like, wow, that's crazy. That's serinum, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, right. That's right. Seeing by, behind the veil always seems like a good thing. But, but let me not poo-poo what you said too much there or dismiss it because I like the idea of, of just like you're writing this book to really synthesize a simple message that people can digest. I think that, that the same thing is true for really good teachers and people with a lot of experience with homeopathy. They can present the knowledge to people in, in a concise way. But, but the experience of, you can't, you can't teach experience though. Well, that's where we need to get, that's what I always think about with students is we need, we need good, strong clinical shifts with doctors that genuinely have lots of experience with homeopathy that yeah. are really good with it, treating difficult, severe pathology and disease in those schools. Because I didn't get that, you know, I got great teaching when I stepped out of school and I started studying with Paul and Amy, Paul Herskew and Amy Rothenberg, great teaching. I learned a lot about homeopathy um, and I'd already been practicing it for a little while and studied it and I wasn't very good at it, you know, I was like doing it as a chiropractor and I just, I wasn't that good and then I studied with them. But what yeah. lacked in, in school and the training was that deep clinical shifts where you're, you're really sitting at the feet of a master and get to observe it and have them also have that charisma and ability to articulate and ability to uh, you know, set the ego aside and really say, this is what this looks like. And, and that's what we need in the colleges. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And what we have in the colleges instead is the firing of all the elders and Just teaching, pardon me? Systematically. Systematic firing of the elders who are the most important vital parts of any profession. Um, and, and the teaching of fear in medicine, to be afraid, to, to, not, to not take chances in case. You know, I, I, I had a talk with Andre Sane and Andre, Andre is an example of a, of a great clinical expert with uh, boatloads of experience and he should be teaching everywhere. And he, he does make an effort to teach a lot. And he, um, he hears all the time from students like, whoa, aren't you gonna like refer them to the hospital? No, I'm gonna give them a dose of belladonna and you know, it's, they're gonna be fine uh, in a couple of days. Yeah. He, you know, to have, you see, that faith in the medicine is, is, is so powerful. Like when you, when you learn from someone who's not afraid and, and who has confidence, it, it spreads, that confidence spreads versus like, oh, that could be strep throat. You better refer to antibiotics and emergency immediately. Don't, don't mess with that. Because if you mess with it, you know, there's, there's a high risk there. Yeah. Like we're That's practicing good. scaredy cat medicine. Scaredy cat medicine. I saw that in school so clearly, you know, the, the residents and the doctors would be afraid to treat a kidney infection. Like all oh, the protocols say we need to do this. And the few of the old docs, you know, who were really awesome um, would, would allow us to treat them and we'd watch them get better. You know, we would, we'd give a remedy and the, the kidney infection would go away. And you and I see that every day, you know, like yeah. the people, the people teaching it have to have the confidence. So you're right. We need the elders. 
Yeah, we need the elders, and and it's a strange thing that they fire the elders. Is it just motivated by the fact that they're expensive, uh, or are there other reasons for it? Um, I'm not 100 sure. It's just it's just another thing to add up to the uh, add on to the pile of how far from the wisdom of our medicine the colleges are straying these days. And I I have a a bit of um I don't know what, what term I could use for it, but it's not a pretty picture view of the, I, I think that basically the same people that are behind the corruption of just about every single uh, human area of you know politics and monetary system, education system, health system, the people that are behind the corruption of that have, gotten a hold of naturopathic medicine because it was growing you know when it was just uh when it was just uh, dr bastier with his one hanging light bulb in, in 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 the basement of some shoddy building they didn't give a crap about that but but now like people are paying billions of dollars out of their pocket every year um for our services if they're not insured for instance and and they they want to stop that. They want to quell that. So they've managed. They've managed. I wonder if the tendrils have really gotten in there. It, yeah, it, it certainly has gone that way. I'm, yeah, I don't know if that's it or if it's just the fear, the desire to fit in. You know, I think we're seeing that a lot in this last year, right? That people are making decisions to fit in. That's become very clear. Like, well, I'm just going to yeah. take an experimental medical procedure because everybody else is, and I don't want to be any different and I'm getting so much pressure and yeah. Yeah. I'll just feel that too. Like we just want to fit in, you know, my school NCNM was down underneath the big hospital in Portland. Like it was in the shadow of that hospital and it was palpable. You could feel it, you know, yeah. you, could, you could feel that like the people there, a lot of them wanted to be up there. Yes. You know? And so yeah, I, I think it's a lot of things. Yeah, I, I, I can't say I know for sure. I would like to, I would like the the um, the monies and, and the planification to be more uh, transparent at the colleges. Yep. Nobody knows where all that income come, goes once it arrives and who's managing it and stuff like that. And, you know, who's paying for certain things at the company because there are pharmaceutical uh, there is pharmaceutical money that's that's uh, filtering into the colleges. So we don't know how much we don't know how much influence that is because the conventional medical school system was basically bought and owned by big pharma, and they tailored the curriculum to create doctors that just prescribe drugs because that's what they produce. And so that's that's a perfect um, business model. Sure, it's a great model. It's a great, it's a brilliant business model. It's got a few uh, conflicts of interest and, and it compromises on the well-being of the patient. But as a, in terms of business, it's, it's brilliant. Yeah. And who's to say that that's not happening now in, in our colleges? We certainly should be on the lookout for it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So um, I know this is a silly question, but do you have, do you have any uh, favorite remedies? Do you, do you love any remedies? Like every time you look at it, you're like, oh, I just love that remedy. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> a bunch. Uh, <laughs> you know, 
It's an interesting one. I always say this, like if I was going to a deserted island and I could only bring one remedy. Oh, man. Now, there's some caveats about this desert island, but if I could only bring one remedy with me, I'd bring sepia. Really? Not for me. I've never needed sepia. But, I mean, one, it's a fascinating remedy. Yes. And two, it is just so frequently used. Like, sepia is just such a common remedy and such an important remedy that on that deserted island, presumably I it would be me and like 50 women. And, <laughs> and I would need sepia. <laughs> well, if you were on a deserted island, you could just dive down and catch a cuttlefish and make your own. Maybe you could bring another one. <laughs> it's so fascinating too. Why in the world does the human form have this, you know, relationship with and need for the ink of the cuttlefish? Like I can understand nature muriaticum. Yeah. We're made of it. I yeah. can understand sulfur. We're made of it. I can understand calcarea carbonica. I can understand cali carbonica. I can wrap my mind around all those why phosphorus, why the human might need those to come back into balance. Yes. I cannot for the life of me figure out why so many women need the ink of the cuttlefish. Can I, can I throw out a, a possible theory? I would love to hear a theory. Okay, so... The ink of the cuttlefish is used to help the cuttlefish disappear. Yep. And many, many people, and I want to say largely, you know, women um, have a propensity to make themselves disappear. Mm. And so there's a substance in nature that matches that. That's, that's homeopathy on the sort of like mental, emotional, etheric level, you know? And, you know, it's, the textbook stuff like a housewife who's exhausted and burnt out and she's just self-effaced, self-effaced. I, I had this very interesting case of a woman that I had given sepia to and I hadn't seen her for a number of months and she was doing okay on it, doing pretty well, I'd say. And she came to me for fear that her, her, her son was getting married and she was terrified to go to his wedding because he was getting married in California and she was terrified of earthquakes. So you could look at fear of earthquakes and there's like maybe six to 10 remedies there. But I did, I did, what I do is I do holistic counseling. I just asked her deeper and deeper questions. Well, well, what's, what's, what if you were in an earthquake? Well, then I might get crushed. And what's the worst that would happen? I would die. And she started crying. And actually, she didn't start crying then. I said, and what if you died? That she said, then nobody would see me. And she started bawling. And I said, oh, you're, we're back to sepia because that and that actually resolved her fear immediately because it is the fear of disappearing, which she had had already. And that is the thing. I think that's why so many people need it, because a lot of people, a lot of women in particular, the feminine, you know, the feminine tends to disappear. Sure. It's a lunar thing. Okay. Too. So you think uh, just to like flush out your theory, you think that that's just a fundamental thing in the human form and the human psyche. And this thing in nature happens to match that perfectly. And we just happen to find it because, you know, as the story goes, the, uh, I don't remember if he was a friar or a monk, but he was, you know, tasting the end of his pen and putting it in the ink. And then he started to develop the symptoms of sepia. Yeah. 
up on. So you think it's just that it's coincidence that that substance fixes that fundamental thing. I don't think it's coincidence. I think that, that all of this has like a divine yeah, intelligence. You probably don't believe in coincidence any more than I do. No, no, exactly. I don't think it's coincidence. And I don't think it's a coincidence that that guy put his, his thing in his mouth and started to develop symptoms of sepia. And I don't think it's coincidence that certain homeopaths feel inspired to prove certain remedies and bring them into the Materia Medica. That, you know, we go through different ages and right now for the last at least a hundred years, sepia has played, has been good, but in the next hundred years, it might not be as relevant and radium bromatum, radium bromatum or plutonium nitricum or the lanthanides or these newer remedies that we're bringing into our materia medica might be more relevant. Sure. Depends on where we're at in our lives, you know? Sure. No, that makes yeah. perfect sense. Just as there would be different remedies in other worlds and other planets and, um, as they suited those peoples, yeah. Yeah, you know, Rajan Sankaran came to Montreal and I asked him a question. I, I don't, I don't probably wouldn't have used that as much. It's like, you know, you're in front of a genie and you have one, you have one wish. I wouldn't have not have asked this question, but I nevertheless, I did. And I said, do you think that there could be remedies that, that are prepared from mythological creatures like dragons and unicorns and, and he kind of laughed at that and he said, um, well, no, it would be just like, it would, you, you would use a substance that already contains a theme of that mythological creature, like, um, uh, I don't know, like a dragonfish or, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's, na there's named creatures and stuff like that. Anyway, it was, it was kind of a fun thing. Um, those that could be the, that other world, you know, the, the mythological realm of where we get remedies from someday, for sure. I, I like the question, for sure. Yep. I, I also asked Jeremy Sure that this very question, because I've often surmised about that. How does a person who has never, say, been bitten by a snake, for instance, and they don't, well, we don't, maybe their ancestor did, but let's say we don't know that, right? How do we justify them needing the 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 venom from a from a snake that's in an, on another continent say and he he was like he he didn't i don't remember what his answer was but he was teaching he came to ccnm and he gave a lecture and um i i, I don't know i don't know what it is but there's yeah well if we're all of the planet you know this is our home and we're all made up of the same fundamental things and we really share a great amount of DNA with everything else on the planet. We're more like everything on the planet than we are not like it. Right. Then it follows that all of our remedies would be here. Right. And I think that's the beauty of homeopathy too, is that we have all the medicine we'll ever need. You know, you could take one plant, one. Yes. All you'll ever need for the rest of humanity. You can make all the homeopathic remedies you need. You could take one sampling of a bowel and get all of this particular nosode you will ever need for every yes. like that it's also that that microcosm out of the macrocosm that i think is yeah. fascinating like yeah absolutely I, I love it i also find it i what i find so fascinating is that you you're taking a case and you collect your 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 symptoms and then you look in the materia medica and the, the person the patient is actually manifesting symptoms of 
what we see in the proving, like in a textbook case, not all cases are textbook, but some textbook cases make you go, how did this person get so clearly in this state of this substance they've never been influenced by, like, like a snake remedy or perhaps a butterfly or uh, some plant remedy that's in the Amazon forest. They live in uh, East, uh, you know, New York or something. <laughs> I've pondered the same thing. It's fascinating, particularly when you see like a characteristic or keynote symptom in multiple different systems, you know? Yeah, they've got the mental, emotional, but they have something in the eyes, something in the skin, something in the bowel, and you go, oh my God, this is just screaming that. I've wondered the same thing. It blows my little mind. Yeah, it blows my mind. And, you know, you, I think you had asked, a, 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 you had asked something before or made a statement just about how do we make this more accessible? You were, you were talking about helping students that are coming into homeopathy make it less challenging. So there are some, there are some you know, modern adaptations of some homeopaths that are trying to put everything into families. And are you familiar with Jan Schulten's periodic table of elements? Okay. So Jan has also then now done his plant um, periodic table, right? And there are some Indian homeopaths like the Joshis who are doing the animal map system. Um, so they're mapping it on. The, so they're trying. They're they're trying to do that. I think it's a a work in progress, and there's certain dangers to it or pitfalls. But I, I think that I think as we evolve um, and our science evolves, our our instrumentation evolves, that we might actually be able to determine the remedies faster in some way, like with some cool diagnostic system. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. And, you know, and even people that use Vega machines or muscle testing, and, and this is a far departure from classical homeopathy, but yeah. my mind has become way more open to those concepts and ideas the longer I've been in practice. And I used to be quite dogmatic about it. And now I go, well, you know what, if, a, if someone gets to a remedy and it helps them, great. Like I had a patient today from New Jersey who called me who I've gotten through this horrible systemic MRSA you know, oh, and she called me because she, her roommate got it a little bit. And she said her roommate started taking, they looked it up. They had no experience with homeopathy before me, but um, her roommate started taking pulsatilla, silica, and hepar sulf. And like the MRSA started getting better and the boil that I think is what led them to that got better. Oh, yeah. and, and the first instinct in me is this cringing of like, oh God, they took three remedies. What will we ever learn from it that? But then the other side is like, well, who cares, man? Right. Who cares? Right. This woman in New Jersey took three homeopathics and all this stuff went away. That should be the headline news. Yeah, there is there is some orthodoxy in homeopathy that I, I have to confess I have been um, operating under. I think I think to a very orthodox homeopath, I would seem extremely unorthodox but i recognize in myself there is ortho orthodoxy there is some classical training and you know you no know, you don't do that and and i think homeopathy is really vast and the the law of similars can work on multiple levels and i i once was i once was pondering this question you know like i'm seeing i, I saw I, i've self-prescribed since the the dawn of my studies too 
And uh, you know, I was I was told not to do that as well. But I was I was really wondering, and I I, I asked creation, God, what have you, can we take more than one remedy at a time? Um, and I was standing down at a lake and I actually had a very interesting answer come to me. I was watching um, the ripples created by water dripping from leaves on, onto this still lake. And the water drips were coming from different leaves. And so these, these beautiful ripples were going right through each other and completely undisturbing the ripples. The energy of a ripple can go through another ripple and not interfere with it at all. Whereas we would think classically, oh, they would self-destruct, you know. They would self-destruct. Now, we do know that there are certain remedies that antidote other remedies, and some are inimical, right? So you don't want to give those inimical remedies because the patient will be in distress, uh, however, the principle of giving more than one vibrational medicine at once, I think, can work. Um, I don't. I still don't do it a lot because I still operate within that parameter. But once in a while, I'll say, you know, take this remedy this day, and then you know, a few days later, take that remedy, and then go back to remedy number one, and we'll see how that goes. Or you look at a system like Undas, which obviously works. Yeah. You know? I, yeah. I mean, I, I would like throw up in my mouth a little bit in school when people would bring up Undas. <laughs> and I've gotten to a place where I go, who cares? It obviously works. It, there are homeo there are naturopaths and homeopaths who use that system brilliantly and cure deep, deep degenerative disease. And I love it. Like, that is awesome. That is so much better than what is being offered in the conventional world that who are we as orthodox homeopaths to throw any shade on that concept? Like, go right ahead and tell everybody about it and teach me how you're doing it too. Cause I think it's fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I, I agree. I, I like your attitude. You know, I, I think it's, I think there's wisdom in what you're speaking and I, and I, I could probably even be a little more enthusiastic about the UNDA numbers like you are than I am. Um, but I, I'm, I'm growing, I'm becoming more open, more open-minded to the different manifestations of homeopathy that I think that's important because that if, if there is a pitfall where there is a lot of knowledge, there could be a lot of ego and a lot of attachment to that knowledge. And homeopathy is one of those medicines that attracts a lot of very, very intelligent people, but could be also like big, you know, egoic minds that like, get attached to their knowledge kind of thing, yeah? Well, the thing, you know, the thing that sort of tipped me off is that, um, and I even had this with homeopathy, but I'm sure really trying to look at my life anywhere where I have like a knee-jerk reaction that I don't like something and I'll sort of like reel away from it. Many of those things I have circled back around in time to discover that I actually really do like that thing. And there's a lot of value in that. Mm. And so I sort of had that with undas and combination homeopathy and that whole thing. And so not that I prescribe them, but I would, you know, like if yeah. I knew I understood them at this point in my career, yeah, I prescribe them because what if it worked? Now, I think there's a real elegance and a beauty and understanding. That's the nice thing about homeopathy and prescribing a single medicine that you learn that medicine really well. Once you see six patients present in different ways, then you can sort of internalize that. And so I wouldn't advocate for someone that's just getting into homeopathy. I would instead say, take the long road and really understand the remedies because then you'll know them inherently 
and then you can do whatever you want, just like you would with a botanical. How much more would you know if you just prescribed this one herb and watched right. what first the Chinese medicine formula I was looking at today that has 23 herbs in it, you know, that I was going right. to give someone. Um, but I guess the point is, I don't know. I think they're, I think they're all of value. And I think if I, if we look at something and maybe we at first glance don't like it, maybe there's some reason that we should go back and revisit it. I think that's an interesting point. Yeah. And there, there's some reflection there that it's bringing up. And it also depends on what level that we want to operate at. Cause we're the human being we're, you know, we're talking about the, the yugas and the yugas have a parallel with the different levels of our bodies in like, if we, if we study the Vedas, uh, the, the yogic knowledge. Um, so there's, there's five, we have five bodies, which are, are the same as three bodies. But in the in the three body model, there's the the um, the bliss body. Then you have the subtle body, and you have the physical body. The subtle body is made up of three bodies, so that's what the five model body is. It's the higher mind intellect. Then we got the the lower mind slash emotion, and then we have the vital body. So we can when when we address the, the the disease at just the physical you know Hahnemann goes on and on about the problems of that and and the suppression that comes but sometimes we got to control the symptoms so that's where we would do it at the the nut the, the, you know the big boulder reality but then when we're giving the unda you know I don't I don't think that I mean I, I actually I can't say I, I know this for sure but my hunch is that we're really moving a lot of energy at the subtle level and in the subtle body, which is just slightly more higher vibration than the physical body. So, and that, that's not a bad place to address illness at all. If that's our end goal, I, I like to, I like to help a person understand the, how they got sick through the relationship of them to themselves and, and what they believe about their reality. So I'd like to work at the level of the mind. And so I'd like to select a remedy that also matches that and the totality of the symptoms. It's not always easy to do so, but, but that's my preference in my practice. So I'd like to do that. But it's not to say that a person can't work just at the vital level or, you know, like, why not? Why not? Why not? Or is some people, you know, thought about it too, like, that whole idea of drainage or drainage, or what if you did that for a while and you cleaned the person up and you got them healthier, and then it became very clear that the person needed sulfur and that was it. You know, like what if that bought you time and it moved the patient along? Is we ex we all experience that as naturopathic doctors is that people can be very impatient with their care because we are looking for long-term results on a very deep level, and the suppression is never, never an option, really that it's really always trying to weave someone through, or as I like to say, the Rubik's cube of their story. Yeah. And what if you use something there for a while that did ameliorate some things and created some discharges and had them increasing their energy until you understood the genius or the gestalt of the remedy. I, I think it's brilliant. I mean, I just, yeah. as I go further along, I just, and I think that's what herbs do a lot too in naturopathy. You know, I use a lot of botanical medicine, a lot. And I try and make the formulas as simple as possible. I try, I repertorize my botanical formulas, you know, I'll like, I'll think about their symptoms and I'll go in and I'll look and I'll narrow it down to plants and I'll sort of create a repertory of the plants and then I'll pick out of there. So I'm creating a, you know, an uh, 
energetic botanical formula too. I don't always do it, but when I do, they work better, you know? That's cool. That's yeah. really cool. I like that. You know, I'm learning, I, I, I just in talking to you're inspiring me also to realize that I'm, I have been quite idealistic about some things. And whereas idealism is really good in some ways, in other ways, it can become problematic when, when you cling to the idealism. And, and I, I've become more flexible with, with, and not just as a naturopathic doctor, but other things that I've been doing in other realms, like hobbies, you could say of uh, like alternative energy forms and you know, working with orgone and organ accumulators. Like I had some of these, I had some of these concepts that, oh no, that's how it works. But, but there's the, the mystery, there's so many subtle levels of, of these medicines and these, these sciences that we can grow from a lot more without such heavy idealism. I agree. I agree completely. It opens it up and the discoveries we could make and the people we could help. And we've all seen that, you know, that there, you, you try your standard thing and it doesn't help this person and maybe they go somewhere else and that's okay too, if they get help, but what if they don't, because we were stuck in a box. What if we said, no, I can only do it this way. And if we just stepped out of the side of this and I've seen it a thousand times where I expanded my mind a little and I tried something different and then the patient got better. And I went, well, gosh, darn, who yeah. am I to decide what remedy that, or that therapy that person needs, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. I, yeah. I, I, I like to, I like to strive for balance and everything because, you know, the, the I, I can understand in the, the ortho, the orthodox mind in homeopathy, being afraid of throwing out the principles that have worked for 200 years it for for an, a modern advent, which is easier to digest, but not necessarily as clinically effective. So there are some, some greats who are very orthodox and who reject the new thinking of some of the new homeopaths that are publishing books that are very popular and stuff like that. So I understand the orthodox, but I, I, I'd like to see a balance of like, let's, let's explore, let's expand, let's try, let's work at, at, at growing, not necessarily in those dangerous cases where, where if you make a mistake, you know, you have a very small window of opportunity to help someone. But in this cases where, you know, we're being guided towards something that is a little bit different than what we've tried. So to balance that with, with this, this, these solid principles that that we know work from homeopathy with this growth principle, this new so to kind of bring these worlds together, I, I, I would like to see that happen. I agree. I agree. That's the only way it can develop. And yeah, we shouldn't lose the efficacy. We shouldn't lose the firm foundation, but we should always be thinking and trying and experimenting. And I think, I think doctors classically were experimenters, you know, we yeah. are practice, you know, you have to, you have to be creative. The human organism is super complex. And every single one of us is different. And so I think we've, I think we have to be creative. I agree. I agree. All right. This is, this has been great. I, I'm really, I, I love this. I, I feel like I could sit, you know, maybe sit and just chat for the next five hours about, about topics like this. <laughs> well, I'm sure we could, we could go on and on, but um, for out of mercy of the listener, <laughs> for, for mercy of the listener and, and, you know, some of the practical reasons, um, 
I, I could, I could perhaps we can wind down a little bit. And what I, what I would love to offer you, Doc, is is an opportunity to share as much as you want, last parting wisdom, things you would like to say that you haven't said. Um, any any pieces that you would like to share at this time, please please do. I think it goes back to our fundamental discussion here that we got into and the way that we're talking about the grand scale. And just to say that I genuinely believe that we're, we're gonna head in the right direction. I really do. Mm. And I always love that expression, you know, that's attributed to the Buddha. Who, who knows if the Buddha actually said it, but you know, that three things cannot be long hidden the sun, the moon, and the truth. Mm. And the truth of what's happened in the last year or two will come to light. And the truth of who's standing behind the curtain will be shown. And the truth of our fundamental principles of our medicine will once again be shown to be true. And I, you can't deny that. And so I have a lot of I have a lot of excitement about that, a lot of hope about that, because I know people have been really in a dark place for a while. And, and we've seen it played out over and over again in our patients and our family members, our friends. We've seen families ripped apart, relationships ripped apart, businesses lost, suicide. It's been a dark time. But I am I'm genuinely encouraged that the truth will rise to the top. It mm. always does. Mm. I agree, absolutely. Like nature in, 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 the, in an urban jungle, you know, that always finds the cracks to grow out of. Yeah, I like that. That's, that's a great piece of wisdom. It's very encouraging, it's very positive. I do like to end on such a nice note as well because we did touch on some of the, the not so nice uh, aspects of that festering wound with gravel in it that we were talking about. Um, so, Doc, thanks so much. Uh, I really enjoyed today. I'm, I, I, it's a pleasure to meet you. You are most welcome to, to be a part of, of the school, uh, the, a real naturopathic school going back to the real medicine. And I would like to, I'd like to uh, wrap out with you more sometime if, when, if and when we get a chance. I'd like that too. This has been really enjoyable. Thank you for having me on. You're so welcome. And thank you for being on. All right, everybody, this is Endies for Truth. This is actually number 19. I'm Dr. Moshe, and uh, this was uh, Dr. Chris Lebowski, and we are out.